0: Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have left off at 213.
1: And it is that's the tower. Prepare yourself for a world of Hey, good morning everybody, it is Saturday, 10 o'clock, you know what that means, it is time for the Science Nights, all the nights are here, and they are assembled, and uh, they're going to be talking about something really, really cool, and uh, that's also really hard, ugh, science is hard, math is hard, and is math science? I guess it is, right? Or oh, you certainly need a lot of math to do science
2: to do it right, and yeah, thanks for that Conley, I'm, I'm Sean Graham. Biologist, we got here, Dr. Anurban Bhattachary, as always, our astronomer physicist, and Dr. Tom Schiller, a paleontologist, and together we cover a really cool piece of ground as far as what kinds of stuff that you could talk about with science. Really interesting topics. Today we're going to talk about how and, and brace yourselves for this. I, this may be surprising to many of our listeners, maybe not to some. Science sucks. It's And what I mean by that, it's really hard. Science is really hard. I I don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) Dr. Graham. My science does not suck. I (laughs) I dig
3: up dinosaur bones, so...
2: Yeah, there's nothing hard about that, right? Nothing tough. And you're going to... What we're going to do is we're going to... This is an important thing to talk about, because listeners out there might be under the impression that science is all about, you know, a eureka moment. You could probably picture, you know, somebody like... Isaac Newton sitting there getting hit on the head with an apple, and then he figures out several laws of nature, and that's the way it works. You have to be really smart to be a scientist, right, and think a lot, and then you'll get all that you need. But you know what? To me, in my experience, uh, all science is is, uh, just a series of obstacles. It's very difficult. This is something that I think a lot of people don't understand, the public doesn't understand, especially our current students don't understand this and they need to know. And so that's what this show is going to be about. We're going to describe how science sucks. And I'm going to get it started by describing to you a scene. All right, so maybe close your eyes and picture this. Picture it's 1857, 58, and you're in what is now Czechoslovakia. I'm picturing kind of idyllic summertime, you know, uh, little cottages. English ivy growing on some of them and there's a monastery and there's monks walking around this is unusual there's incredible scientific activity happening because in one of those gardens in the monastery are planted hundreds of rows of pea plants and there is a monk all by himself in his little brown tunic on his hands and knees most likely crouched down looking at those plants taking data examining them he's he's clipping the stamens the little male parts of the plants off with a pair of tiny little nose hair scissors so that he knows which plant gets what pollen because he's cross-breeding these plants and he's dabbing the pollen from one plant to another using a tiny little paintbrush he's doing all the fertilization all the pollination himself for hundreds of pea plants. And he's on his hands and knees, and whenever those plants mature, he then counts thousands of seeds and characterizes thousands of seeds that result from those crosses, whether they're yellow, whether they have wrinkled peas or round peas, whether they're tall versus short plants, whether they're white flowers or purple flowers. He's chosen seven traits to look at across generations. And then he takes all those seeds, he counts them, And then he plants them, and he crosses them again through several generations. And then he starts looking at more than one trait at a time, two traits at the same time, crossing them, keeping track of all those data in his little notebooks. And this goes on for eight summers. Eight summers. He's collecting thousands of data on these peas. And from those data he's able to infer several principles of genetics of heredity that are currently still the foundation for our understanding of genes but it took eight summers of work in a garden on his hands and knees and he had plenty of time because he was a monk and at that time you know the catholic church was interested in horticulture you know they would grow stuff and they wanted to know how you got certain traits so that they can maybe make a better piece so that they could give those seeds to the people and they could have better gardens. And that's that's why he was doing it. So the kind of monastery guy, the head guy, the abbot, I guess, was fine with him doing this with his spare time, but he was doing this for years. That is very, very difficult work. And the person I'm describing, of course, is Gregor Mendel, a, a, a monk who in the 18 Late 1800s figured out inheritance and how it works. All the things you might have ever heard about, about like dominance and recessive traits and how they're inherited and the kind of ratios that you can get from crossing certain kinds of things. All that very predictive power of how genes work, which I should say nobody understood at the time. All of it figured out by one person in what is now Czechoslovakia. And you'll love what he got uh, for for all of his work, the recognition he got. He got no recognition. The abbot uh, saw his work and thought he did a great job. It was published in a German-language publication. And Mendel was actually contemporary with Darwin. Darwin knew almost everything there was to know about biology at the time he published Origin of Species, one of the reasons why he was able to put all that together in a, you know, unique foundational theory of evolution but he didn't read german so he never figured out any of mendel's work um so mendel died before his work was ever recognized and never got any recognition for it he knew he found the answer but nobody else did And it wasn't until about the 1920s that scientists went back and found his results, dusted it off, and said, wow, this is the key to inheritance. And they merged it seamlessly with evolutionary theory in what we call now the modern evolutionary synthesis. And uh, Darwin was unaware of his work. Mendel never got recognition, toiled for eight years, figured out a couple of laws of biology. And there aren't very many laws of biology, several principles Uh, an incredible amount a lot of hard work uh essentially got no recognition for it certainly no money and this is how i'm afraid to say for all you kids out there who are getting started in science that's how it works
0: i mean we also want to make sure like Mendel was a priest he wasn't necessarily doing it for the money
2: of course and and none of us are doing it for the money money, either right we We need to be clear about that i
0: mean we yes, I mean we need to survive somehow. But yes, yeah. it
2: brings market.
3: up a brings up a good point. Um, and you know, one of the one of the purposes of this show is, is so we have an excuse to gripe about our students <laughs> who who don't who don't completely understand this yet. They will. Um, but you th- you think back to Mendel and, and his contemporaries, uh, they weren't going to, to college. They weren't pursuing a degree. There was no ultimate goal to their work other than discovering something about the natural world you know the fundamental purposes of science we have this this curiosity as people uh, the only organism we know of that is capable of 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 doing science basically higher level science and having this curiosity this drive to understand the natural world so i think uh, that that fundamental purpose is sometimes uh, Overlooked by students sometimes.
0: I mean, it's not students, I mean, it's bad, like, we, we shouldn't just say that, but I think it's a general uh, idea of uh, science where you're always portrayed a scientist in a movie wearing this uh, kind of this, uh, white lab coat. Lab coat. Like, it's uh, like, uh, and it's always either the scientist is this misunderstood genius. Or a person who's crazy, who's trying to bring hell back on Earth or right. something like mm-hmm. that, doesn't... Um, Somebody trying to make
2: giant ants.
0: Ants, like, without the consequences, trying to pursue something without, like, um, actually understanding what the side effects are going to be. But scientists are not really that. Are not right. that.
2: And it, it's, a, you know, we're trying to... Uh, among the the, uh, the real people who I want to try to reach with this this uh, episode are the people who, who kind of have an idea of what science is really like. And enjoy science, and are hungry for science and the knowledge of science, but may not be aware how hard it is and Maybe if they knew how hard it is going into it, they 'll be less likely to just take their first uh, punch right and then fall down and then say, "I quit," because that seemed, that 's what this episode has kind of emerged from i 've seen too much of this, especially literally recently i 've seen graduate students. uh, something doesn't go right with their project and the first sign of trouble they decide to quit and that's, I think they are under the impression that science is, uh, you know oh, all i got to do is formulate a hypothesis uh, go and test that hypothesis and then um, look at my results and get a paper out of it publish it, and then I get uh, recognition and I get paid and there are a bunch of things wrong with that uh, even formulating a hypothesis takes a lot of background research. You've got to look into it. You've got to find out if that hypothesis has ever been tested before. you got to do literature search. And most students hate reading, so they don't like doing literature searches. And so they end up, a lot of them will quit at that point. You send them to go find a paper, like, and they're done.
0: Coming back to that reading part, and I'll come back to the publishing. Let me first tackle the part about publishing. It's like Yes, publishing is very important in science because you want to communicate science to the
2: to the to me it's the most important so, thing i might uh, i might differ from you guys so, in, in that
0: let's have like yeah but so let's talk about you didn't uh, but it has to be the curiosity that is the most important part uh, before i would say like having an interest to do the research in yeah, the first place but the curiosity first, is first great part,
2: but but i think that if you if you figure something out and you know it and nobody else knows it what's the point
0: well, Where is, that, is that's, a, in, that's the
2: publishing part. You get that paper that's out there. I
0: think it would be more like a, a, your duty as a scientist to communicate your results would be fair to say. Absolutely. as like an important duty, but, I, uh, but that is one part of it. I, I'm just saying. For example,
2: had Mendel done eight years of garden research, got his results, and decided not to publish it, we could be still in the stone ages as far as genetics goes. But they eventually found his research, even though he didn't, they didn't find it during his lifetime, somebody found it, and it's because he published it. If he'd never published it, who knows? Maybe there were people out there before Mendel who got there before Mendel. How would you ever know? That's why I think publishing is super important, and I'm bringing this up not to disagree with you, but to say the publishing part sucks too. It's another <laughs> yes. component of the terrible hardship that you have to go through and it's a part that not many people hear about so, so to talk about it.
3: Would, would, would you guys agree with me in, in saying that um, the kind of the, the misunderstanding with people who are, who are going into science students or whoever is the amount of time and effort required to do science because that's, that's something I've seen with students in the past is like you said they think they can come up with their hypothesis they can they have the eureka moment they write it up and it's over but um, it takes hours and hours, days, in some cases, like with Mendel, years, to, to do science. And I think, you know, it may be, maybe it's because of all the, the distractions that, that people have today yeah, and the, the digital era with smartphones and video games that, you know, they could knock off at, at 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the evening and play video games or, or do something on their phone. When I did my, my thesis and my dissertation, there was not a waking moment that I was not working on it. When, when I was in the process of writing the thesis and dissertation, there was not a single waking moment that I wasn't doing something towards that, including staying up till 5 o'clock in the morning. And then
2: it becomes difficult because then you get sick of it. And that, that usually, almost every project I've ever been involved with, by the end, I never wanted to talk about it again and I still feel that way about almost every single research. I've heard paper that from I've a lot of done. other scientists. Like anybody like there people will email you thinking you want, oh, hey, that's a really interesting paper and I'm like, oh, good. Well, I never wanted to speak to so, anybody about this ever again. It was the worst period of my so life. So bringing it, was really it back hard. to that
0: part about reading papers, right? Mm-hmm. When you said about that.
2: The literature. Uh, search, literature, yeah.
0: literature like you cannot form a formulate a hypothesis uh, without having read sufficient amount of. Uh, background material and this is why I I would think having a good advisor is a great because the you need to be pointed you just there's it's very few people one needs to understand is Einstein like Einstein sat in his own it the patent office and reading the material but advisors are where it comes in to point you in the right direction of what you want to do your or rather like what are the questions that need to be answered and pointing in the direction and then it's your personal responsibility comes into play i would assume that out of the seven days in a week you all have read like had if you put the hours in together at least an entire day was filled with reading papers like would you agree with that at least when, sure. when i was not still not in just, training yeah. yeah not just sitting in your uh, uh, not just doing it just reading papers you put the hours together like yeah. like and so reading a paper takes concentration. And and it's not the fun part because at that part you might be thinking that well I need to be observing or but I'm not saying it, reading papers are not fun but you think like as a student that you need to be doing something else
2: and how for the listeners who are not familiar with the scientific literature maybe you could tell them how scientific papers are to read compared to say a National Geographic article they are dry they're the worst they are dry and they suck and it's <laughs> I mean. They're you full have, of acronyms and, um, and it's all, it's it's the worst and you got to get used to reading them. Yes, and and for a beginner, it's uh, hard. It's you, very you, very hard. It takes hard. a lot of practice.
0: It, it, like that's why every advisor, like who is a good advisor, will tell you: read the abstract, read the introduction, and go to the conclusion. Because most of the good advisors know in the me- the way they have done the met- the methods and the data sets they generated. Those are hard to read. Those takes. Patience. They you yeah. get into that later. So yeah. But and I,
2: I, you know, I got in the habit of uh, my my way of reading papers now is like abstract, introduction, discussion, and then I go back to the methods if I have any questions about whether or not I think yeah, they I do could the same have. Thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We, because we're, you, we're yeah. jaded. We, we're and we've gone through yeah. this a lot. We've done it a bunch. So we kind of you develop your own way of doing it. But I always recommend for my beginning students to read the whole thing. They don't get that luxury of skipping around because they don't know what's important. No, 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 absolutely. What what
3: I always tell my students, and this is something that my advisors told me um, when I was a student, is especially if you're doing a a thesis or a dissertation, you have to be an expert. You have to become an expert in that topic. And I've told all of my graduate students that they need to know more about what they're studying than I do. Yeah, absolutely. They need to be experts.
0: Like, when I started studying... The main thing would be to focus, yes, the paper was important when you are initially as a student, you need to focus on the introduction a lot more, like, because that's where your literatures are. That's where you will find something, oh, this is a very interesting concept, this paper is referencing to, you. maybe I can go and look at that up. Okay. So it's kind of like a, a very fun process, but it's also not very, it's not like fun in the same, like...
2: How would I describe it's it? It's like detective work. I yeah. always thought it was like detective yeah. work. You're following leads. You're finding. Yeah. You're finding, yeah, you're yeah. finding and then you're, you're finding this kind of complex spider web of different papers. And at some point, you realize that you've got a big circle. You have put a big lasso around all of the literature that's out there, and then you are the expert. You know. You know the. You know the boundaries of what is known about the topic, and you can figure out what to contribute. Something new.
0: And that takes like three to four years. That
2: takes a lot of time yeah, to figure it out. It's really hard.
1: Yeah, well, uh, just uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, after the break, but you're getting to something, all of y'all are getting to something really uh, interesting. Uh, j- just from my particular research that I've been doing, and, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of friends and, you know, family members and academia. The rabbit holes. It seems like they can go on and on and on forever. Well, with the Internet, they, they almost
3: do go on forever. <laughs> they, uh, literally, yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um, uh, maybe after the break, we can talk about how to stop yourself and uh, maybe, uh, you know, how to kind of focus on exactly what you're doing. And where do you draw the line between your uh, idea, your Basically, general idea of what you want to do. And then when you get to a piece of information in the, within the lit review, uh, to that really kind of substantially changes it.
2: You might find this surprising, but um, it's really hard. That mm. part is yeah. one of the hardest parts. And it sucks. And it's <laughs> all right. Hey, right.
1: We're going to be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. All right. We are back with the Science Nights. And before the break, I was talking about – I was actually asking – Our uh, crusading trio right here. Uh, A question about, you know, when you're going into researching, and it doesn't even have to be an academia, right? Because if you're just interested in something, and as long as you put all your effort into that one thing, well, you can find a lot of rabbit holes around you. And during your pursuit for this knowledge, it's hard to find out where to stop and where to start your actual original research. And that's a question I pose to you three.
2: Yeah, so I think this is a this is one of the hardest things about science. Like when we're I mentioned earlier, everyone kind of knows the typical uh, what science is supposed to be like. You make observations, you state a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis. Well, people don't realize what that means. That, that stating and that testing of the hypothesis is really hard work, even just the stating it part. And that's what you're getting at. Like if you go down a rabbit hole. Um, it, being able to focus in on some interesting topic to test knowing what that is and how to do it how to test it uh, that takes a lot of practice and that's what i think like a master's thesis is all about that's why i usually discourage students from trying to go directly to a phd because by the time you you're working on a phd you should already know how to test a hypothesis and you would have got that from a master's and and that's why in many sense the uh, Masters are harder than a PhD because it requires, it's more of an uphill climb to get to stating that thing. Yeah,
3: and, and as we were talking about before, the, the benefit of reading a bunch of scientific publications is not just to learn about whatever you're studying, but especially at like the master's level, you're learning how to write as a scientist. The best way to learn how to write technical, scientific, uh, is to read to read scientific papers. And it is dry, and it can be boring and tedious, but coming into a master's degree, I see a lot of students who still write using hyperbole, flowery language like they learned in in an English class or a literature class. It's completely different. And you read a hundred scientific papers, you may discover a, a technical writing style that you like,
2: and you learn how to now to replicate it do it by mimicry yeah exactly that's tell, yeah, and that's one of the hardest things that's a huge hang up for a lot of students they will not read so therefore they're never going to be a good writer we want to make sure like
0: mimicry is not plagiarism. <laughs> so please want to make, make sure about that one yeah um.
2: <laughs> that's another problem
0: <laughs> yeah so you want to that's a different kind of w- worms all um Uh, Another thing, you guys, when we were saying master's and PhD, you mean like do a separate master's degree and then again join the PhD program, uh, a separate PhD program, right? Uh, Because like usually that would mean like usually what it means in science is you join the same university and get your master's and PhD on the way. Right. So, you don't really have the necessary transition. Now, I know I'm getting into something like completely, but it's a part of the, you're, if you're going to become a scientist, it's kind of part of this yeah, in the okay. United States. Like, it's, uh, uh, you you don't get that necessarily the, the break when you're in a university. You join a ma- PhD, you're getting your master's, and there's no break, like a distinctive line which says, okay, you're a master student and you're a PhD student as you're doing that. So, and and in between, there's there's this
3: incredibly stressful moment where you realize, yes, you're done with your master's degree, and then you have to look for a place to do your PhD.
0: If you are doing it in two different places, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. What yeah, you yeah should, exactly. What you should do. Yeah, that's what you two are recommending, right? Because I came from a place where I joined in a PhD program directly, and then did my masters on the way. Finished the course, I was done in the masters. But I never had that idea. But later on, I do realize, like doing a masters. With a thesis would have been would have made my PhD much better. Like I would be, I know I would have. It would have been an extra year, like doing the coursework and stuff later on. But it still would have helped me in the sense the frustrations that I felt doing the PhD level research with the master's level kind of master's not out of the way was it's a little it, it, like. Yeah, I think uh, I would say, yeah, I think it's a good suggestion to do masters and then do the PhD. Exactly.
2: Now, what I'd like to hear you guys tell us now, um, just to hammer home the point that science sucks, is uh, I want some war stories. I want war stories from both of you about uh, stuff, uh, projects that you guys were involved in, and maybe some classic examples from your field. Uh, You know, it doesn't have to be your research, but I want personal stories and I want history of your field sure. of, of, of some of the really tough things that happen. Thomas, you go ahead and get, get us started.
3: Okay, well, um, I, I've talked about this before on previous episodes, but I did my master's and my PhD work in Mexico, in northern Mexico, and along the way I did a whole lot of work um, separately down in, in Big Bend National Park. Now, uh, those of you who are familiar with this region of Texas, especially close to the river and maybe you've been over to the other side of the river, um, is during the summer, it is incredibly hot. Unbelievably hot. Um, I've never been to Death Valley, but I would suspect that it's, it, it, it reaches those extremes. You are saying it's hot in the desert. It's hot in the desert, <laughs> believe I, it or I, not. I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm blowing people's minds right now, but it's hot in the desert, especially during the summertime. Now, uh, another thing uh, that we struggle with as scientists, especially scientists in academia, is the amount of time and when we're available to actually do field work. And it turns out the summertime is really one of the only times during the year, if we're not teaching summer classes, that is, that we can go out and do our field work. So when I did my work down in Mexico, especially for my dissertation, it required a lot of field work, a lot of hiking around, mapping, doing stratigraphy, looking for fossils um, during the summer. And the last time I went down to Mexico to do some work, I was staying in this ejido, this a little village in, in northern Coahuila. And it was around the late part of the summer, it was in September. And they had a special word that they used for that time of the year that I had never heard before. It's called the canicula. And I asked my wife. My wife is from Mexico. She had never heard this term at all before either. So what is the canicula? Canicula? Canicula. Everyone in town was saying, es la canicula, es la canicula, as they were making fun of me for being out at at 1 o'clock in the afternoon doing field work while they sat in the shade. Um, and I, I, I realized through some some really uh, difficult uh, language gymnastics with, with the matriarch of the family I was staying with, that canicula is, tra- is kind of the translation of the dog days of the summer. You know, C-A-N, like, uh, like canine, right? The dog days.
2: Oh.
3: Um, so I, 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 they didn't have any, 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 uh, any temperature gauges or anything like that. Um, in this town, but it was the hottest I had ever experienced it. And I'd worked a lot in Big Bend at that point, even during the summer. It must have been over like 125 degrees. So um, that being said, in my field, as, as a field paleontologist and a stratigrapher, um, requires a lot of work outside in the field. A lot of hiking around. If you do find something to dig up, you're out there in the open desert, digging, doing grunt work. Uh, trying to, to excavate bones that could weigh over two hundred pounds.
2: And that's that that digging is not what most people probably think of when they're thinking of digging up dinosaurs. You're using an awl. You're using like practically like dental implements. And, and it takes a long time and yeah. you're just once you get there down and, to the bones. You're sitting there in the dirt for all day. Yep. Chipping away.
0: Yeah, and you got you got to to experience that with I you. did. And you, you, you wanted to say like it's a two-day or three-day, it's like months, I would assume. It's it whenever it gets done. It, yeah, right? it's whenever it gets done, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. And then you have to carry the stuff out. Uh, yeah, and I was, and when you said that, <laughs> <laughs> this town, and I assume you don't really have access where you can, well, you're, um, well, I'm doing the field work, but I can go back to my cool air conditioning room in the night, chill out, have a relaxed... I'm assuming that's what happened, yeah.
3: No, year. <laughs> no. The, the town I was staying at in, in Mexico had, had no air conditioning. Uh, there were two refrigerators in the entire town. Um, so, no, it was, it was incredibly unpleasant. And there were a lot of mosquitoes, too, because it was kind of during the rainy right. season.
2: How, so. many, how many summers did you spend for your PhD? Uh, th- three summers. <laughs> how bad did that suck? It was pretty bad,
3: okay. and addition, additionally, you know, I'm miles away from my family. I, I was away from my wife for long periods of time, and, and I just had a satellite phone that I could use every once in a while to call her and tell her that I was still alive, basically. That's,
2: I, that's something I'm glad you touched on, because there's, there's this loneliness involved in, in this stuff, the field research, and you're just out there by yourself most of the time. I think that gets, that gets to a lot of students, I'll bet. It, gets, it weeds a lot of them out. I think so.
3: And just the the, the physical rigors of, of doing it, you have to be in shape. You know, it's it's difficult to tell a student that no, you're you're not in the physical condition to go hike around all day in 120 degree heat. And it's you know it's a common mistake, especially in my field uh, with the Jurassic Park generation. There's so many kids who grew up with Jurassic Park and they want to be paleontologists. Now, I'm not I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy or anything like that, but um, what we've been talking about in this episode is, is kind of the, the poor understanding that people have about what goes into to different facets of science and especially paleontology. You go to a, a professional conference in paleontology and you see a lot of kids who don't know what they're getting into. Um, a lot of them that, that, that kind of flush out because they, they, they can't do field work. They can't go out and, and dig up bones, um. There is a lot of lab work involved, but that's not the only component. Same goes for something like, like archaeology or, or biology, even astronomy, I mean.
0: I mean, Yeah, I mean, to analyze uh, your bones, you need to get the bones in the first place, and that means digging on
2: the bones. That's right. Digging so them and cleaning them. Cleaning them. And that part, that's the lab part you're talking about, where yeah. you're using dental tools and it takes months. Yeah, and it's an
3: incredibly tedious process. Um, A lot of institutions, they have preparators who all their time is devoted to that stage of the process, but um, I'm kind of a one-man show when it comes to to my my paleo program here at Sol Ross, so I do the full, every stage of the process. Luckily, I have some grad students who I can go out in the field and and load up hundreds of pounds of bones and bring it back and say, listen, you might not want to go out in the field, you might not want to do field work, but I have some bones here that you can clean up cut your teeth in that way.
0: When you say certain university ha- universities have preparators, right? We think that's the correct word, right? Yes. Uh, these people who clean up, what you say, when you get the bones back, right? Yes. But I understand, but that is only a part of the process. And these universities that you're talking about are pretty big universities. Yes, correct. I would assume not Every university would have that kind of a,
3: No. Like, even even at Texas Tech, we did not have a, a designated preparator, at least in the, the geology department.
0: so The museum had, had some. But could you get them from that museum to work on your PhD stuff? No. Okay, so no. That's, exactly it what, it yeah, yeah. that's exactly what I was getting to. So you had to do it on your yeah, own. I'd, yeah, I had to do it on my own. So Which was a good thing. You, you, you want to learn every Absolutely. possible. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm just saying. I just wanted to make that clear. Like, we talked about even Texas State, is a pretty big university in Texas, and, and in the world, you didn't have the resources for yourself. Yeah,
3: so so I'd I'd have to say that's the that that would be the uh, the mo- the biggest struggle I had, and and one thing uh, also to mention, we talked about the difference between a master's degree and a PhD. Master's degree typically takes less time to complete than a Ph.D., to write a dissertation. My dissertation was almost twice as long, twice as many pages as my master's thesis. But I would say the, the dissertation was actually easier. It took me less time to complete than writing my, my thesis. But that's, that's a whole other story. We can talk about that. Yeah, that's because
2: the, the training involved in getting that master's yeah. first is really important.
3: So what about you, Dr. Graham? What, what's your, uh, your
2: war story? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an interesting more story because I've had I've had similarly brutal field experiences, um, you know, in the desert and swamps, you know, mosquitoes, tropical diseases, you name it. And that's kind of field biologists almost um, love that stuff. We love telling those stories, and like that's kind of one of the reasons why we do it is because we we want to challenge ourselves that way. We're crazy, but I'll give you an example of one where it wasn't it wasn't particularly physically difficult. But um, it's a good example of what we're talking about, where the work kind of sucks. So I did surveys for a rare uh, salamander species when I was at Auburn University in Alabama. No one had really done surveys for this beautiful, charismatic salamander, the hellbender. It's the largest salamander in North America. It's this brutal, ugly, fleshy salamander, really cool, charismatic. And most most people you know, who are herpetologists, uh, amphibian reptile biologists, would love to see these things. Like, they're, they're among the most cool species to work on. So uh, when, you know, I realized that no one had really done any surveys for the Mal- Alabama to determine whether, what their conservation status was, right? Are they rare? Are they doing very well? I took it upon myself to kind of recruit a bunch of people to, to pitch in to survey several streams in northern Alabama. And it was incredible to me how few people wanted to be involved, they, they said they wanted to do it, and then they wouldn't actually participate. So it was like pulling teeth to get anybody to help. And so I ended up doing a lion's share of the work on my, on my own or with friends that I recruited to help me while I was working on my PhD on a totally different topic. And we put hundreds of person hours into surveying these streams. And here's the, here's the, the, uh, the, the interesting part. We never found anything. So we put in hours and hours of work and never had any payoff. But in order to establish that something is not there, you can't just say, I looked for 10 hours and I couldn't find it, uh, so they're not there. You've got to put in enough time to convince somebody that you put in enough time that they're not there. So you're putting in hours and hours of backbreaking work. This involves flipping humongous rocks on stream beds and snorkeling and swimming, going down rivers and canoes, trying to cover all the rivers where they'd ever been found in the past. And we established pretty firmly, they're not there. And this is the only paper I've ever heard of where I published and had zero data points. Our our And our results were zero, and we published that. And it was a nightmare. And and that's why it was so hard to convince people to help, because they would go out once, strike out, and they wouldn't go out again.
0: So we have a term in science for that. Null hypothesis, like you basically, if it's a result, is a null result, you still publish it. You because, can still publish it. Yeah. Because it says that uh, you're actually helping another person from not doing the same thing. It's like you, they know there is, something is not there. Do not do this. So that's the thing, and that's also part of
2: science. And it was from this uh, study, it was like a conservation thing, because it was like, look, uh, you know, we actually argued in the paper that we shouldn't be worried about the conservation of this species in Alabama because it doesn't occur there. It's like worrying about the conservation status of a tyrannosaur in Alabama. Or like it's, a the, it's the same thing. It's extinct. So any money spent on the conservation of hellbenders in Alabama would be wasted. You need to put it towards something that's still there, that has a chance of recovering, and do not waste money trying to conserve so hellbenders in Alabama.
0: So that is exactly what I was trying to say. Like an Even a null result is important. You need to go and do that. Yeah, your
3: your uh, your story reminded me of a of a, another really quick story I can tell here. Um, so you talked about how you helped other graduate students. This is another thing that happens, especially at bigger universities, is uh, graduate students will help each other with their projects. I was fortunate enough to help a, a buddy of mine who was working on his PhD when I was, um, and do a couple of summers up in Southeast Alaska doing geology and paleontology up there. And uh, the the full story might might be better for another time. But uh, the first summer we went up, we went up without any sort of cooperation from the Forestry Service. We had to rent a a sixteen foot skiff to visit all of these islands, basically out in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and it was really, really, really tough work. And on one occasion, we almost ran out of gas and almost got shipwrecked on one of these <laughs> islands. But We'll save that story for a yeah. future show. I don't know how we can tie that in with another topic. But, yeah, um How dangerous. about you? How about you, Honor Bond? Do you have a, a good war story oh, I, for us?
0: I was uh, so basically um, so uh, since the break's coming up, so I got a pretty short story to sell. Um So my PhD was on observation, and I was fortunate enough to like have graduate students uh, coming up with me acting as my secondary because my observatory was like. Uh, Ten miles away from this small little town, up on a mountain, six miles up a dirt track, so you, which would get covered with snow, and driving was pretty risky. We would, we would have snow cats, big vehicles for removing snow on the track. So my PhD, my core PhD observations lasted for three years, out of which the first year was a complete waste. And I found that out after six months of observing that what I wanted wasn't happening. And uh, does it mean it will not ever happen again? The problem with my objects, yes, they might happen again. So you do that next year. So hoping that it changes the way you want it to change. But even the next year when I did it, when it did change, there was no surety that it would change. But I did the first year of my six months of observing, hoping it would change, going up the mountain, staying up entire nights, like till morning, 4 a.m., during November, it would go up all the way to 5 a.m., driving all the way back down in snow and everything, and then you don't have a result. You don't get what you want, but you don't give it up because your project sounded interesting. You want to keep on going. So, um, I'm assuming that's what we mean by horror stories, right? And like
2: That's a good one. Yeah, yeah.
0: and of course, we can always talk about... Uh, People are always making this huge thing about PhD while doing a PhD, having uh, uh, friend, like colleagues who are naturally not uh, very uh, nice to you or your uh, faculties who are not very nice to you. But the thing is like that that's like I would say that is a part of any job that you will do. You will have colleagues who are not nice to you, your boss is not nice to you or like somebody on boss's level who's not nice to you. But that is a part of I don't think there's any difference. Well, well, we'll we'll continue to uh, our our belly aching sec, uh, session
3: here after the after the break. Uh, uh, come back for the science nights here in a couple minutes.
2: All right, so we're back from our break. Thank you for the sponsors. And I, I don't want to give the listeners the impression that it's always bad all the time. This isn't this isn't a, it is not is not its kind of a negative episode. We're going to keep that negative thing going because I think it's kind of a a public service announcement. But there are there are ups and downs in science. And a lot of times if you just focus on the downs, it's really that's when it gets really hard. And I always uh, you can see when colleagues are going through a bad spate. You could tell. And you gotta kinda remind them there are these beautiful ups and downs. The downs often are really, really, really hard and tough. But then the the payoff is when there's an up. When I used to call them metal moments, whenever I was working on my PhD and something went right. And I analyzed my data, and I found interesting patterns that would be really cool to report. I would, you know, I'd do air metal. I'd, I'd play an air guitar, and I'd be really excited. So sometimes, and that's kind of what keeps us going, are those, those really good ups.
3: Yeah, and um, not, not to be uh, too uh, philosophical or transcendental here, but uh, I, always, I always compare my science, and this is probably the same with, with biology, to fishing. Are there are any fishermen or fisher people out there listening. Uh, sometimes you go out and you have a great day. You you load up your ice chest with fish. Um, same thing goes for paleontology. Sometimes you go out and you find that, that that T-Rex skull or whatever you're you're out there looking for. But even if you don't, you're still out in Big Bend. You're not sitting in an office. You know, at the end of the day, you pull out your camp chair, you sit down, you have an ice cold beverage. You watch the sun go down. It's just like it's just like fishing. You had a good day. You did some science. You might not have had any results, but you were out there doing it, right? That's great.
2: So, honor I would love to hear an example. Another example. I think astronomy is probably even more under misunderstood than you know any of our fields. So, do you have an example from your field of a of a good story about kind of. Uh, Astronomy, some hardship, when astronomy sucks.
0: So, when, uh, so before we get into this, one thing we have to mention before we say this, it's about perseverance. It's like how you persevere in the face of difficulties. So, right now, you don't have to be really, really brilliant. Many brilliance will to drop out because you have to face the hardships. You have to be very clear about that. You, brilliance will only get you far. So far, you won't get you over the finish line. So you hard work will get you the rest yeah, of the way, and
2: determination That's to do that. Part so. of the reason why I wanted to do so. this episode is for kids out there who are under the misimpression that that science is about like the smartest person. No, it's usually the hardest working person. So you can be you can be a moron like me and still be pretty good at science. I wouldn't say moron, but
0: okay, you need to. Be that, but uh, we're all we're we're all goobers. Yeah. So, um, okay, so I want to talk about in this sh- pretty in the show with like this uh, scientist uh, whose name is Cecilia Payne G- uh, Um So let me give a brief bio. Born in like uh, 1900, uh, nine one nine zero zero. She became the first uh, female professor in Harvard. And she was the first PhD, female PhD to graduate from Harvard. So as you can see, she, she was a trailblazer in her times. So, um, and she, at the end of the day, she, um, so it seems like her career was like, she ended on a very high note to trailblaze her way through becoming this amazing, what do you say, an idol for young female scientists to come across. She had a share of uh, uh, difficulties along the way. Now, I w- if you're thinking going, it is going to be a tale of uh, sexism, this is not a tale of sexism, but the thing about how science works, how the current ideas of science uh, and how when you challenge them kind of thing. So when she first did her PhD thesis, her thesis was uh, 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 came up with this... Um, revelation that our sun is actually mostly made out of hydrogen and helium and not made out of what at that point we thought that sun is made out of what earth was made out of just at a very high temperature just evaporated materials on earth you just evaporate them and that's what sun was made out of that was the current uh thinking at that time she challenged that using a theoretical equation called the saha equation using that she she said This is why the observations are matching up. The spectrum matches up the way with the theoretical results, what this equation is predicting. Now, when she presented her result, she was told that her results were spurious by one of her dissertation committee members. Spurious. Spurious. So, hokey pokey. Hokey pokey. Loosey goosey. Yeah. Now, five years later, the same person published his results, and he had to acknowledge that her initial explanation was the right one five years later so she got vindicated in her lifetime unlike Mendel who didn't know what his contribution was she actually got vindicated so I would like to point out yes there will be obstacles, but at that same time, I want to. Did she give up on astronomy? No, she didn't. Was she frustrated? Yes, she was. She still continued working on science. She still was an astronomer. She did over a million observations of um, Magellanic Cloud and all those variable stars. So there's a lot of stuff she
2: did. Over a million observations? That's minimum.
0: million. I'm just sure. I, I, that's at the top of my head, I'm telling you. Oh, okay. I think it's way more than a million observations she did. That's a lot of coffee. That's Of coffee you're talking about, Uh, so you can see. um, uh, So she did not stop. uh, She did not stop right there. And interestingly, she could have been a botanist. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that. Because yes, when she was fifteen, she made a detailed note of the uh, the the plants that grew in her uh, neighborhood in England, and went to a botanist. And the botanist told her. I say, oh, this is not the way you do botany. This is not the way you make res- uh, like your records. And what it turns out, loss for botany, gain for astronomy. Hey, so yeah,
2: that's a, that's incredible. And that, how about that? That's a lot of times people who make the big contributions are not the kind of people you would expect them to be, right? Who would have predicted a, a Catholic monk would have made a major contribution to field of biology? Absolutely. So thinking outside the box, hard work. And, and not necessarily being the person you'd ever expect. That's another kind of message to the young people out there that you can make a big difference. So, Cecilia Payne,
0: like I will say the words of Cecilia Payne, she,
2: she has very nice words for this. So. so, right. So, I was just talking about ups and downs, and she went through some serious downs. downs. Yeah, I mean, and so, if you're going through some downs, remember c- these words. The reward of the young scientist
0: is the emotional thrill of being the first person In the history of the world, to see something or understand something, nothing can compare with that experience. The reward of the old scientist is the sense of having seen a vague sketch grow into a masterly landscape. Wow! Very cool. How about that?
2: That's exactly right. Yep. And that's you know seeing something for the first time. We get that's the payoff, everybody. It's not money. It's not a degree. It is seeing something that no other person has ever seen or understood. It's and the then big telling fish. people about it. And telling, you get to write and you're the first person to tell and It someone
0: could about be it. insignificant, you have to mention, but it is the, yeah, it's it doesn't still, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The, the scale,
2: it doesn't have to be covered by yes. National Geographic or Nature. That's also. what part that I think is personal. Yes. It can be something beautiful to you that's the first time you've experienced it. And it doesn't have to be the big, heavy hitting discovery, but it's still yours. So we're ending the episode on a,
3: on a high note, very good, not all negative here, um, we don't want to dissuade anyone from the sciences, it is hard work, but it's a lot of fun. Now next week, we'll be talking about superfluids, don't know what a superfluid is? I don't really either, but Dr. Bhattacharya knows what a superfluid is. And he's going he's gonna to teach us about superfluids, and we're going to have a nice
2: conversation about that's, that. Uh, that's just stretching it. Teaching. Teaching. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week on the Science Nights.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432 217 1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you. And thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's science nights in the morning with a K and we'll see you next time.